Hello, this is Daniele. I'm very excited for today's episode of my Luminary Original podcast, History on Fire. Today, I get to chat about Bruce Lee, and I love the topic in so many ways. It's hard to even know where to begin, but um, you know, we'll get the ball rolling soon enough, and you'll get to hear why I'm passionate about the topic. For more History on Fire, go to luminarypodcasts.com. Hi, this is Shannon Lee, and whether you like history or not, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in human experience, like I do, you have come to the right place. Daniele Bellelli is a university history professor, writer, martial artist, and a friend of mine and he will be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. Please enjoy this episode of History on Fire, all about my father, Bruce Lee. Let's go set history on fire. I'd love to dedicate this episode to those closest to me whose lives have been impacted by Bruce Lee. My daughter Isabella, Savannah Riem, Roberto Bonomelli, Mark Chang, Pete McCormack, and of course, Bruce's daughter, Shannon Lee. Speaking of Shannon Lee, uh, the voice you heard in the introduction belonged to her. Infinite thanks for agreeing to record the introduction for this episode about her father. So with that in mind, let's get the ball rolling with the first episode in this two-part series about Bruce Lee. I remember the first time I was introduced to Bruce Lee's work. I must have been uh, maybe seven, eight years old, maybe nine at the most, somewhere around there. And Bruce Lee showed up in my living room on a tiny TV, barely bigger than what most computer screens look like today that only broadcasted three or four channels max. I forget which one of his movies I was watching, but I'm certain it was the first martial arts movie I'd ever seen, and the first film I'd ever seen starring an Asian actor. At that time, it would have been really hard to imagine that now, so many years later, I would be still talking about that guy. Even in more recent times, Bruce Lee has played a rather important role in my life. My first book, which was published in Italy when I was in my early 20s, and was about philosophy and martial arts, featured an image of Bruce Lee on the cover. Fast forward about 15 years, and I ended up featured on a documentary called I Am Bruce Lee, that broke all the audience record for documentaries on Spike TV, and feature folks like UFC champion John Jones, UFC president Dana White, boxing legends like Manny Pacquiao and Ray Boom Boom Mancini, NBA stars like Kobe Bryant, actors like Ed O'Neill and Mickey Rourke, grappling gods like Jean LaBelle, uh, my PhD advisor and scholar extraordinaire Paul Bowman, just to name a few. And it was thanks to this documentary about Bruce Lee's life that I had a chance to meet Bruce's daughter, Shannon, 
and director Pete McCormack, who over time has become one of my very best friends. Incidentally, Pete's work is fantastic, both as a writer and director. If you have a chance to check out a documentary series that he created for HBO Canada called Sports on Fire, you won't be disappointed. Uh, his storytelling skills are really second to none, like nobody tells stories the way he does. And yes, if you are an acute observer, you may have noticed there a rather heavy similarity between the titles of the documentary series and my podcast. That's not a coincidence. That's because I really like the title, and I blatantly ask Pete if I could steal it for my podcast. And Pete, being the absolute gentleman that he is, agreed to let me use it, so here you go with History on Fire. Uh, to make the whole I Am Bruce Lee experience even sweeter, uh, the premiere of the show was the first time I went out with my lady, Savannah Riam. It wasn't even a romantic date or anything, just what I thought was a hangout with a friend. Well, little did I know. All this to say, I'm extra excited to be tackling this topic, because it's one that's super important to me. And I'm sure this may puzzle some of the nice folks listening. Maybe you know of Bruce Lee purely in passing, and your image of him is just of some athletic martial arts guy who starred in a handful of films in the 1970s. Maybe you don't care about such things. And maybe you're wondering if this series of History on Fire is for you. If that is the case, I strongly recommend for you to stick with me and give it a try. If you are to visit Bruce Lee's tomb in Seattle, you would see engraved in stone a sentence left by his friends and disciples that says, Your inspiration continues to guide us toward our personal liberation. Now, this is not exactly the kind of stuff you expect to see on the tombstone of some random action star. So if nothing else, this should be your first clue that Bruce Lee was not just another athlete or another Hollywood star. He was, of course he was all of those things, but he was much more as well. You know, when asked about it, his wife Linda said, what is this something about Bruce Lee that continues to fascinate people in all walks of life? I believe it is the depth of his personal philosophy which subconsciously or otherwise projects from the screen and through his writings. This is a theme we are definitely going to spend time on before the end of this series. And I believe that, you know, some of you guys listening, I'm sure, are Bruce Lee fans. Some of you are not, and you're again, you're wondering why is it even a topic. I'm pretty sure that by the end you'll be able to see why it's a big deal. At the time when I'm recording this, almost half a century has passed since the death of Bruce Lee in 1973. And yet five decades seem to have done nothing to lessen his fame. A while back I've done a series about Jigoro Kano, uh, the creator of Judo, and about how he more or less created modern martial arts. The way I see it, no one has played half as big a role as Kano has. No one, that is, except Bruce Lee. Because it's really not an exaggeration to say that millions of people have taken up martial arts because of him. You know, in popular consciousness, Lee was not just 
another martial artist, or even one of the most influential martial artists in history. He is the martial artist. This is something that anyone who is at least halfway intellectually honest would acknowledge. Uh, whether they agree, uh, they like Bruce Lee or not is completely secondary. His impact on public imagination is just simply undeniable. You know, since the days when he was around, no other Asian lead actor has been able to take Hollywood by the throat and command its attention the way Lee did. You know, watch any action scene in a movie produced over the past 50 decades or so, and you'll recognize his imprint. Action in cinema can be divided in two periods, before Bruce Lee and after Bruce Lee, since he rewrote the rules of fighting choreography. I struggle to think of too many people whose name and face are as recognizable across the globe as his. You know, you could travel to some tiny African village or visit a research base in the South Pole, and odds are you'll run into someone who knows about Bruce Lee. And the funny thing is that his fans, of course, include tons of people who are passionate about martial arts, but also plenty of people who couldn't care less about martial arts, which is more bizarre and more interesting. And, and this is why I tell you that even if initially you feel like Bruce Lee may not be in your wheelhouse, stick around because there's more than meets the eye here. I remember when my daughter was uh, about six or seven years old and she saw some Bruce Lee clips, not even a full movie, and she was awestruck. I hadn't told her much about Bruce Lee, and there was really no particular reason why he would have such an effect on her. But he did. And for the following few years, she kept a Bruce Lee picture on the walls of her room. The only picture of a person other than a family member that she wanted to hang. And I've seen the same thing happen to lots of other people, so I wasn't overly surprised. And yet there is a question there that goes like, why, you know, why, what's about this guy that has that effect on so many different people? In fact, there was something about Lee that captivated equally martial artists and non-martial artists, even though, of course, he was for very different reasons. My hope is to be able to, in, in this episode, to be able to convey what that something was. Clearly, I have a tall order in front of me, since obviously it may not be easy to say anything new or original about someone so famous and well-known, after zillions of articles, books, documentaries, movies, and even video games that have discussed him to no end. And yet, call me delusional and possibly mildly or maybe not so mildly mentally deranged, but I strongly feel that I can bring something to the table that even the most well-documented Bruce Lee fan may find interesting. So whether I'm right or painfully off the mark, it will be up to you to decide by the time you finish this series. Either way, let's get the ball rolling. So since much of the beginning of our story revolves around Hong Kong, let's start with some historical context, you know. It's what I always do in episodes, right? When we got, dive into a story, before we actually get to the story, I need to give you a little bit of the historical context so to make sense of it. If you have listened to my series about the Taiping Rebellion, 
then you already know plenty about the opium wars of the 1800s. And uh, if you don't, I'll, I'll give you the two minutes version. Basically, the British had a trade deficit with China. They didn't like that, and so they decided to fix this trade imbalance by flooding China with drugs, specifically opium. For all intents and purposes, Queen Victoria became the Pablo Escobar, the El Chapo of the age, since the British Empire ran the biggest drug smuggling ring in history. Opium was banned in China at this time, but the British Empire didn't care, because money's money, and if you have to ruin the lives of a few million people to keep the profits going, well, that's just too bad. Like most corporate entities created with the single goal of making money at all costs, the folks at the East India Company were firm believers in the concept of profit over people. The Qin dynasty that ruled China at this time was none too pleased and tried to put a stop to the importing of drugs into their country. So in an effort to keep the drug money flowing, which by some account represented up to 20% of the national revenue, the British Empire responded by going to war in what would become known as the First Opium War, which was between 1839 and 1842. After winning this conflict, the British forced a whole series of conditions on China. Uh, for the purpose of our series, the most important one is that they seized for themselves Hong Kong, which became a British territory for more than a century afterwards. During those decades between the late 1800s and the early 1900s, tension between China and Western powers kept rising. A second opium war was followed by the 1899 Boxers' Rebellion, in which participants animated by fervent nationalism, kung fu mysticism and a belief in their ability to stop bullets, challenged the exploitation of China at the hands of Western powers, but miserably failed. The main result was the eventual collapse of the Qing dynasty in 1912, uh, and further weakening of China. By 1937, Japan's mission to dominate Asia was well underway, and Japanese troops began the invasion of China. It was around this time, as uh, World War II would continue to affect Hong Kong, that Bruce Lee was born in 1940. As we will soon see, he wasn't born in Hong Kong, but he spent most of his childhood and adolescence there. But a bit of family background first. His father was named Li Hoichuan. He came from a not particularly affluent background. He, you know, saying that he was poor is probably closer to a truthful description. But his destiny turned on a chance meeting with an opera singer when he was 10 years old. This uh, opera performer, by the way, Chinese opera is a bit different from uh, opera in a Western sense. There's a lot more theater involved, there's a lot, but in any case, for the sake of simplicity, let's say opera performer. When this particular opera performer heard uh, Li sing, he was very impressed and decided to have him as an apprentice starting in 1914. So the Qing dynasty had just been overthrown, the republic has just been established, there was the end of the Chinese empire. Um, that's sort of the historical context of this time. 
the, the Chinese opera was a mix of high-level gymnastics, stage martial arts, I think something like Cirque du Soleil mixed with singing and theater acting and all of this stuff all mixed together. Many years later, after uh, Li Hoichuan had grown up and had been with this particular company for a long time, his group was invited to perform for uh, Sir Robert Ho Tong Bosman, who was uh, the wealthiest man in Hong Kong at the time. There, he caught the eye of Grace Ho, who was the niece of Ho Tong Bosman. Author Charles Russo tells the story in this way. After becoming smitten with him from her orchestra seat at the opera, Grace had eloped with Hoi Chuan at a young age. Although raised in Shanghai, she belonged to a very prominent and multi-ethnic Hong Kong family of the Ho Tong Bosman clan. Her grandfather, Charles Maurice Bosman, was a prosperous Dutch merchant and consul with a wide range of business ventures throughout Hong Kong. He married a Chinese woman, Lady Tse, and had several children, including Robert Ho Tong, who would become a well-known philanthropist and businessman, and is historically regarded as a Hong Kong incarnation of Andrew Carnegie. Grace's father was uh, Ho Kong Tong, who in photographs looks noticeably full-blooded Chinese compared to his very Eurasian-looking siblings, and was likely the offspring of an affair that led it said with a Chinese servant. Ho Kong Tong made an already labyrinth-like family tree exceedingly horizontal by having 29 children between one wife and 13 concubines. A recent book written by Ho Kong Tong's great-nephew, Eric Peter Ho, on the subject of their family tree, refers to Grace as the final piece in the jigsaw of Ho Kong Tong's family, citing her as the daughter of his mixed-race Shanghai mistress. Yet, even as it is typically cited that one of her parents was German, Grace's exact racial makeup remains ambiguous. In fact, during interviews with US immigration officials prior to leaving San Francisco in 1941, Grace formally stated that her father was Chinese and her mother was English. Whatever the particulars, Bruce descended from a Hong Kong family in which racial integration had long been regarded as a non-issue. But if ethnicity wasn't an issue, uh, social class definitely was. The fact that she was coming from an ultra-wealthy family and she wanted to marry some poor actor, didn't go well with the family, so they cut her off from all financial support. But Grace was willing to pay the price and marry the man she wanted rather than enter in some arranged marriage, which was clearly a very gutsy decision. So with no access to her family wealth, it fell to Li Hoi Chuan and his acting career to provide for them. They had a boy who died within a few weeks from birth, which is obviously tragic in all cultures and all times, but was a particularly bad omen within the context of Chinese tradition. According to the prevailing cultural beliefs of the time, in order to ward off the anger of ancestral spirits, 
the couple's second child was supposed to be a girl. So they adopted a girl named Phoebe. Some say they did it to avoid bad luck, some say because they believe she was uh, Hoi Chuan's daughter with another woman. Here we enter gossip territory, who knows, in any case, for let's just take it as a fact without digging further. Grace gave birth to a daughter named Agnes, and then to a son named Peter. And the son, because of this fear that spirits were after the Lee family boys, was dressed in female clothing to trick the spirits who may have tried to snatch the prized baby boy away from their parents. By 1939, Li Hoi Chuan's opera group was invited for a tour of the United States that would last for a year. That prospect was rather appealing in some ways, since by the fall of 1939, Japanese troops were advancing very close to Hong Kong. It was less appealing due to the fact that only one family member would be allowed to travel along with Hoi Chuan. So the goal of the tour was to raise money from Chinese people abroad to support the resistance against Japan. And while he wasn't thrilled about leaving behind their kids, Hoi Chuan chose to do his patriotic duty in the best way he knew out. So he would go on tour and raise the money. Grace would travel with him, while her mother-in-law would watch over their three kids. Soon enough, Grace was pregnant again, and on November 27, 1940, while the tour was in San Francisco, she gave birth to a boy in, uh, in a hospital in Chinatown. She named him Jun Fan. One of the hospital workers suggested to add an American name and suggested the name Bruce. Grace was good enough with Bruce, so Bruce Lee became. Within days of skydiving out of his mother's womb, Bruce Lee was in a movie already. A director, friend of his father, needed an infant for a movie, so they used Bruce for a film called The Golden Gate Girl. The infant in the movie was supposed to be a baby girl, but hey, it's an infant, you can't really tell much anyway, so they dressed Bruce accordingly. Which kind of worked out of, uh, you know, because of the Lee family fear and need to trick evil spirits who were after their baby boys, so dressing Bruce up as a girl was just fine by them. Bruce, in fact, would soon be nicknamed Siphong, which I've seen translated as either Little Phoenix or Little Peacock. Either way, it's a female name in Chinese, regardless of how you translate it. And in case the spirits were too crafty to be thrown off by just a feminine nickname, the Lee family went all out by, at times, dressing him in girl's clothing and having him wear an earring until his ninth birthday, by which point they decided the spirit's wrath had been avoided and they could stop this custom. But we're not there yet. By April 1941, after spending the first few months of his life in the United States, Bruce was on his way to meeting for the first time his siblings in Hong Kong, after an 18 days long trip by ship. The US tour was over, and it was now time for the family to reunite. Clearly, the historical context was a heavy one. You know, just a few months later, 
Japanese forces invaded Hong Kong. Um, the story goes that as the imperial troops were fighting to take over the city, Berusa's father was kicking back with a friend, just hanging out at an opium den, and proving that World War II was no walk, not exactly a walk in the park, one second they were there laying down, happily smoking opium, and the next a bomb burst through the roof. The bomb didn't actually detonate, which was rather lucky for Bruce's father, but with small consolation for his friend who was crushed under the collapsing roof. For the next few years, Hong Kong would end up being under Japanese military occupation. Almost it's needless to say that those were chaotic, scary times. There were lots of food shortages, the population dropped by almost two-thirds, because of people fleeing or dying. Any Chinese who didn't bow on the streets when encountering Japanese soldiers would get their heads chopped off on the spot. Luckily for Li Hoi Chuan, the Japanese really liked Chinese opera, so his family had it better than most. And because of the collapsed housing prices, they were able to acquire some real estate for dirt cheap, a move that would turn out to be rather profitable after the war when prices increased again. But even if it's true that the Lee family was better off than many people in Hong Kong had it at the time, they weren't exactly swimming in gold. Not during the war and not in the following years either. After Lee Hoi Chuan's brother died, rather than seeing his sister-in-law and their kids go homeless, Bruce's father invited her and their five kids to live with them. Now imagine, whatever your living circumstances are, imagine adding six more people under your roof. And these guys were not living in a giant mansion either. They were living in a two-bedroom, one-bathroom house where already Bruce and four siblings, because there had been a new arrival, Robert, who was born after Bruce, plus the father, plus the mother, and now the sister-in-law of uh, Lee's father and five kids. On top of it, there were also household servants, so all in all there were about 20 people, every single one of them supported by Hoi Chuan's acting, all living in two bedrooms, one bathroom. 20 people, two bedrooms, one bathroom. Now, Yes, they were not poor by Hong Kong standard during the war, but clearly they were not exactly living in luxury either. Uh, this is the power of culture in many ways. You know, in cultures that prize individualism over family ties, homelessness can be just one disaster away. You know, the insanely high rate of homelessness in places like modern-day US shows that. In cultures in which family ties are paramount, as long as someone has the means, none of their relatives end up on the streets, even if it means having nearly 20 people live in a two-bedroom house. And the thing is, if you grow up in that kind of culture, you won't think anything of it. You know, your ideas about privacy or personal space would be so different than you pretty much would be used to it. That's the power of culture right there. In any case, 
After living under Japanese occupation for several years, the Lee family was still present in Hong Kong when the British accepted Japanese surrender at the end of the war and took back the city. Considering that China was about to be wrecked by civil war between communists and nationalists, maybe ending up in the hands of the British wasn't the worst destiny that Hong Kong could experience. After the war, the population returned and the real estate values went up, so the Lee family managed to make some money. As we hinted at earlier, Lee's father was a big fan of the opium pipe. Unfortunately for him, after going to war in the 1800s for the right to sell opium to the Chinese, now in the 1900s, British had done, the British folks had done a 180, so they outlawed opium. You know, British cops harassed Lee's father so that he would have to bribe them for them to look the other way and not arrest him for opium. This was embarrassing and costly. So the dad decided to quit opium after this. But even afterwards, you know, after he was able to put down the opium pipe for good, Li Hoi Chuan was not particularly present in Bruce's life. You know, in some ways it was more than understandable. The poor man was working like a dog to make sure that the nearly 20 people who depended on him would have a roof over their heads and food to eat. And yet this very real fact did nothing to erase Bruce's need for a father, for a strong male mentoring figure that's, that simply wasn't there. Whether this parental absence had something to do with Bruce's explosive personality or not is anybody's guess. You know, it's back to the old age nature versus nurture question. Whether it was nature or the circumstances that he grew up in, they were mostly responsible for forging Lee's personality. But what is beyond debate is that Lee possessed the, a very intense personality ever since he was a kid. He was undoubtedly smart, but unlike his older brother Peter, had next to no interest in formal education. You know, he often skipped school, hated sitting still, having to focus on subjects for which he had no interest. So in a paradoxical kind of way, he loved learning and hated school. And because of his hyperactive energy, his family nicknamed him, well, of course in Chinese, but translated would be never sits still. His older brother Peter, who would end up getting a PhD in physics and become a scientist, said that at night Bruce would be punching and yelling in his sleep. Um, as he says, you know, a quote from Peter is, he was tight and tense, even in his sleep. Apparently the only way that the Lee family had to calm him down was by giving him books or comic books to read. Then he would be perfectly content for a while. Um, they also nicknamed him Why Baby, because he couldn't restrain himself from questioning everything. You know, most kids do that. Every kid has that why phase. Apparently he did it more than, much more than average. In today's context, it's almost certain that he would have been diagnosed with ADHD. You know, his brother Robert tells he almost had a disorder which filled him with too much extra energy, 
like a wild horse that had been tied up. Um, this reminds me of a few quotes that seem to have written with Bruce Lee in mind. Here is the Japanese writer Yukio Mishima, who says, There is no such thing as an excess of energy. When a lion runs full tilt under his feet, the fields disappear. He may even pass by the prey he was chasing to the far end of the field. Why? Because he's a lion. Or another one by, actually more than one by William Blake. We have uh, uh, four words in a quote by Blake that say, energy is eternal delight, which is a sentiment that clearly Lee agreed with. Another one goes, the road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. And in a third William Blake quote, he says, you never know what is enough unless you know what is more than enough. All of these quotes kind of hint at Bruce's over-the-top explosive personality. When his mom scolded him, you know, when she would just uh, get on his case and ask him, you know, how do you think you're going to make a living since you're not taking school seriously? He would reply that, nah, nothing to worry, he would become a movie star. And supposedly she told him, you can't even behave like a normal person. How do you expect to become a famous film star? And I think she was missing the point there. You know, normal people don't accomplish extraordinary things. Well, it of course is a double-edged sword, because outside of the ordinary, there are two ways to be outside of the ordinary, right? There's being below the ordinary and being above it. Most people who can't be normal, for lack of a better term, do so because they lack the basic requirements, but they are not going to be great either. So they are exactly what Bruce's mom was worried about, somebody who just couldn't get their act together. However, some people cannot be normal, but because they can do extraordinary things. So his mom said that Bruce always had this belief in having a special destiny, which in light of later events, he was clearly right. Even as a kid, he had his reasons for dreaming of success in acting. After China became communist and there was major censorship of movies, Hong Kong would become the capital of Chinese cinema. His own father began branching out from live performances to acting in movies. And Bruce was offered a part in a movie at six years old, a movie called The Birth of Mankind, and then he continued on making movies throughout his childhood and early teenage years. Uh, under often the screen name Li Xiaolong was uh, Little Dragon Li. All in all, by the time he was 18, he ended up in almost 20 movies. Acting, however, was not the only outlet for his energy. He needed for some kind of physical way to use up all the restless energy that combined with the rough conditions in Hong Kong, put Bruce Lee on the path toward martial arts. You know, Hong Kong was highly chaotic as uh, he was growing up. Super humid, overcrowded, absolute poverty next to multimillionaires, lots of new immigrants coming in every day fleeing from communist China post-1949, lots of homeless refugees who had fled China with just the clothes on their back. Bruce's childhood friend, Hawkins Chong, said, 
Hong Kong in the 1950s was a depressed place. Post-World War II Hong Kong had suffered from unemployment, a poor economy, overcrowding, homelessness, and people taking advantage of each other. Gangs roamed the street, and juvenile delinquents ran rampant. So this mix of poverty and desperation, in light of that, is not exactly surprising that there was a lot of street violence and crime. Hardly anyone possessed guns, so most fights were hand-to-hand or with knives. And Bruce Lee very much found himself caught in the midst of it all. Since he was a little kid, he used to get into fights with anybody who bullied him. And, how can I put it delicately? Um, Let's just say he wasn't shy about actively looking for fights. As he himself said at one point, I was a punk and went looking for fights. A simmering ethnic-slash-class rivalry between Chinese boys and British boys from a nearby school often reached the boiling point with fights erupting, and Bruce was usually in the thick of it. He would say, kids there have nothing to look forward to. The white kids have all the best jobs and the rest of us had to work for them. That's why most of the kids become punks. Life in Hong Kong is so bad, kids in slums can never get out. Perhaps not surprisingly, in 1956 he was expelled from school, and there are various versions for why it happened. But regardless, after this he went to a school for trouble kids. The father would get mad, but he wouldn't really be around to keep an eye on him, so not a whole lot changed. Bruce figured that if he was going to keep getting into fights and considering his personal inclinations and the context in which he lived, that was pretty much a guarantee, so then he better learn how to fight. So he was extremely interested in picking up martial arts. Not out of any idea of self-improvement or anything like that, he just wanted to learn how to become a better street fighter. That was pretty much it. Quite a few people in Hong Kong at the time sort of looked down on the martial arts. You know, martial arts were tied to the triads and gangsters and the past and that kind of things. But Bruce didn't care. He wanted to learn how to fight. So he became friends with Hawkins Chong that I quoted earlier. He also became friends with William Chong, same last name, no relation. William was more experienced and bigger. And, uh, you know, Bruce kept bugging him to introduce him to his Kung Fu teacher because he wanted to learn to be more effective. And since I'll be using the term Kung Fu multiple times, I better open and close a real quick tangent. Now, the original meaning of the term Kung Fu referred to any skill acquired through effort over time. It had no specific martial art meaning, but eventually became the collective name for martial arts in China. In any case, the teacher in question would become a legend in Chinese martial arts circles, with plenty of movies dedicated to him down to this day. We're talking about Ip Man, one of the most famous Kung Fu teachers in modern times. Ip Man came from a well-to-do family from southern China, 
but demonstrating that even a relatively privileged upbringing is no insurance policy against hardship, he still had to flee his hometown during the periods of Japanese occupation. And later, he fled again, this time for good, after communists won the civil war and took over the country. So following the communist takeover, traditional martial arts in China were on a fast track toward extinction. Chinese communism was at war with traditional practices. Martial arts in particular were seen with suspicion both because of the hierarchical nature of the master-disciple relationship, which was radically against the communist ideology, but also because of the long history in China of martial arts associations often being the front for rebellious groups against the central government. So this led to a dramatic transformation of martial arts in China from being more combat-oriented to being more performance-oriented like modern wushu or being transformed into something for health like the way Tai Chi is practiced today. Some of the combat-oriented styles survived primarily thanks to refugees like Ip Man who brought their arts to Hong Kong, Taiwan and to other places around the world. Hong Kong in particular became one of the hubs for Kung Fu masters fleeing China. By the time Ip Man arrived in Hong Kong, his wealth and youth were a thing of the past. So he started teaching martial arts for money to make ends meet. The style Ip Man was a master of and practice was called Wing Chun, a type of Kung Fu primarily focused on striking renowned for its emphasis on combat effectiveness rather than flowery but less practical techniques. The legend at the origin of Wing Chun tells that government forces raised the southern Shaolin monastery in the early 1700s due to the monastery offering safe heaven to enemies of the Qin dynasty. The legend further tells that five highly skilled fighters survived the destruction. One of them was a woman named Ngmoi. After her escape, this woman befriended a young woman named Yim Winchun, who was harassed by a local thug who wanted to marry her. Whether she felt like it or not didn't really matter to him. So this was a rather big problem since uh, Him Win Chun couldn't say yes, I mean, could say yes, but didn't want to, and wasn't really in a position to say no. So she confided in her friend, Nmoy, and Nmoy advised her to, to agree to the marriage on the condition that he would wait a little. During that period, she would teach the young woman a simplified fighting style designed to be learned quickly and be used effectively by a smaller person. When the time was up and the thug arrived ready to claim his bride, Im Winchon placed one more condition. He would have to beat her in combat. Only then would she agree to marry him. The thug thought it was funny, you know, it was a funny joke, so he agreed. But Im Winchon picked him apart. And so as a result, the style was then named after her. Now, almost certainly, there's a lot more legend than history in this account. It's a great story, but, you know, the reality is... Who knows what the reality is? This is just how the legend was passed along. 
Bruce Lee wasn't exactly concerned with separating legend from historical thought. Couldn't care less. His interest in Wing Chun was purely pragmatic. He wanted to become a more effective fighter, and nothing else. He was 13 years old when uh, Ip Man began to teach him. In characteristic fashion, Bruce Lee dove himself into studying Wing Chun with manic intensity. If anything caught his interest, he never did anything half-heartedly. He would be extremely dedicated. He was insanely driven and competitive, so if he actually cared, which didn't happen too often, but when he did care about something, he would pour all his substantial energy into the endeavor. And his obsessive focus paid off. So he began to progress very quickly, much faster than, than average. His success, however, got on the nerves of some of uh, Ip Man's senior students, whose egos were bruised by being outclassed by a relative newcomer. So in a fit of envy, some of them pressured Ip Man to kick Bruce Lee out, since he wasn't full-blooded Chinese, and they didn't want to train with anyone who didn't meet their racial purity standards. The racism obviously was not something that Bruce Lee would only meet later in life once he made it to the United States. Racism was alive and well back home in Hong Kong. In Bruce Lee's case, he encountered it among the British kids who saw him as a Chinese and thereby inferior, but he also encountered it at the hands of the other Chinese folks who didn't consider him Chinese enough. So this put Ip Man in a bit of a bind because he had taken a liking to Bruce, so he was more than happy to bend the rules a bit for him. At the same time, he didn't want an insurrection among his students either. So as a compromise, Ip Man let some of his assistant instructors do the bulk of instructing Bruce, rather than to appear to take too much of a personal interest in him. And yet, it was clear he liked him enough to ignore the calls for full expulsion. So, Bruce Lee continued in uh, Ip Man's calls, despite the hostility of some of his classmates, who either refused to train with him or went extra hard on him to make him quit. As Lee himself would later say, these guys, some of them assistant instructors, gave me a hard time when I first started Wing Chun. But according to William Chung, none of this matters since Bruce progressed so quickly that he was better than most of them within a ridiculously short amount of time. And while he was making giant strides in absorbing Ip Man's lesson, he also learned a little bit of Northern Shaolin, um, a style that was known for its high kicks and more spectacular moves, just for the sake of having a flamboyant style that would look good whenever he wanted to demonstrate his skills to a public that wasn't as knowledgeable about the intricacies of martial art moves. Incidentally, this would also turn out extremely useful in his filmmaking later on. Now, if you hold any kind of romanticized idea about martial arts as a tool for spiritual development or to become a better human being, you can rest assured that this did not apply to this phase of Bruce Lee's life or for that matter to much of the youth martial art culture in Hong Kong in the 1950s. These guys trained for one reason and one reason only, and that was to fight. And fight they did. 
a lot. Young Kung Fu practitioners form their own gangs and regularly challenge one another to test things out. Far from being discouraged by their teachers, the young fighter usually they would usually act with the blessings of their instructors. Hawkins Chong, for example, say that if men would tell his students, don't believe me, go out and have a fight, test it out. And this is how schools build their reputation. You know, to avoid uh, unwanted attention by the police, most of these challenge fights would take place on the rooftops of some buildings, where, thanks to the styles of architecture prevailing in Hong Kong, the fighters would have both space and privacy. Bruce fought in these challenge fights. You know, in one occasion, he challenged an instructor from a Choi Li Foot school. Wing Chun and Choi Li Foot were both highly popular styles in Hong Kong, and a rivalry existed between them. Bruce struggled initially, losing the first round and getting hit quite a bit, but he came back strong in the second and knocked out his opponent. However, the damage he had taken, you know, coming home with black eyes, is a pretty much that giveaway that something has gone down, so his father was mad and he said that he was wasting his life with fighting. Bruce replied that he was bad at school, but good at fighting, which made sense, but it was probably not the answer that his father was looking for. To underscore the good at fighting part, um, Bruce would also join an inter-school boxing tournament, which was a bit tricky for him since he had to adapt to Western boxing rules and to, and to wearing heavy gloves. But the opportunity to get into a fight with the British boys and not get in trouble because of it was highly appealing to him. And things worked out just as planned. So Bruce beat the reigning champ and for once he got praise for fighting. Hopefully he didn't get too used to that, since before and after he would keep getting in trouble with the cops for street fighting. And while it's true that the cops may have not been his biggest fans, his reputation as a bad boy, along with his many acting roles and his good looks, made him quite popular with some young ladies, and he very much basked in their attention. And just to make sure to complete the perfect package to make the young ladies fall for him, he even became an incredible dancer. So, in addition to helping him in the romance department, dancing also helped his martial arts, since it helped him develop impeccable footwork. Which is actually less rare than you imagine. You know, people think fighting, martial arts on one side and dancing on another as two things that really never mix. But that's more of a um, Western European American idea. You know, you think, for example, of, uh, you know, think of somebody like Vasil Lomachenko, you know, one of the best boxers in the world who was also highly trained as a dancer. In any case, uh, Bruce Lee was definitely not fond of academic learning, but was clearly excelling in both martial arts and dancing. His extracurricular martial activities, however, specifically the rooftop experiments in the science of beating up opponents, eventually got him in serious trouble. There are a few versions of what happened that are floating around. All of them agree that Bruce 
badly hurt an opponent during one of the rooftop fights. You know, and depending on which version of the story you believe, the guy who had been on the wrong end of Lee's feast was either the son of a gangster or the son of some other influential figure. In either scenario, the result was that the police let his mom know that if they receive one more complaint about him fighting, they would throw him behind bars for uh, some serious jail time. Upon a sober assessment of where her son's path was heading, his mom decided that he needed to get out of Hong Kong and make a fresh start. Since he was born in San Francisco, he could claim American citizenship and move across the ocean. This wasn't really much of a choice for Bruce Lee. You know, his mom had made him the classic offer he couldn't refuse. And so in 1959, at 18 years old, Bruce boarded a ship that would take him away from everything he knew and toward an uncertain destiny in the United States. It's almost certain that he felt a sense of loss at leaving behind his family, all of his friends and his teacher, Ip Man. At the same time, I can't help but imagine he also felt some excitement about navigating metaphorical uncharted waters, knowing that he had a chance to forge his own path away from his previous identity. I remember my own experience being 18 and moving to the United States from another continent, kind of high on that feeling of adventure that one experiences when having no idea what their life will be like in the new country. For better or worse, the way Bruce Lee would play his cards while once he landed would determine the course of his life. Now, in the late 1950s, it was either neither easy nor common for Chinese people to legally immigrate into the United States. He could, because he was born there, so he was a citizen. Anyone who didn't have that luck had it much harder. Because, you know, in a brief overview of Chinese immigration, the first great wave of Chinese immigrants had arrived with the gold rush in California in the mid-1800s. And then, you know, a combination of the opium wars, the Taiping Rebellion, and some harsh socioeconomic conditions made life in southern China just miserable enough that many people were looking for economic opportunities elsewhere so that they could send money back home and help their families survive. The gold rush had seemed to offer just such an opportunity, but it became very quickly clear that Anglo-Americans would not tolerate Chinese people as competition in the gold fields. So Chinese immigrants had adapted by doing those jobs that the Anglos wouldn't touch. Uh, cooking, laundry, domestic servitude, if you choose to play the legal side of things, or opium, gambling and prostitution, if you decided that the law, after all, was just an opinion. Eventually, Chinese immigrants branched out to offering their services to other American industry that had an insatiable thirst for cheap labor. The railroad industry in particular was very fond of anyone willing to wreck their bodies working under insanely awful conditions for little pay. But while the captains of industry 
were big fans of Chinese cheap labor. Poor white laborers were less than thrilled with it. Because after all, they were competing for the same jobs. So it's not really all that surprising that racism against the Chinese skyrocketed at this time. You know, Chinese people would be lynched on a regular basis on the West Coast. Uh, in 1871, close to a part of Los Angeles where I used to live until a few months ago, a mob lynched between 17 and 20 Chinese people, depending on which source you trust. This, by the way, is a topic covered in episode 1 of History Impossible by Alexander von Sternberg. Excellent series. In another occasion, the California Supreme Court in the 1850s established that this is a crazy one, so let me say it slowly, because it deserves to sink in. California Supreme Court in the 1850s established that white people could not be convicted because of the testimony of a Chinese person. So that basically meant that unless there was a white, another white person that would testify against a white defendant for some crime, the crime could have been witnessed by 10,000 Chinese, and it didn't matter because they did not have the right to, to testify in court against a white person, and that testimony would be enough to convict them. Which clearly, I mean, I don't even think I need to explain, right? There are some serious problems with that concept. And to give an idea of the racism of the time, in another case around this time, in South Dakota once, uh, a lawyer defending an Anglo-American who had admitted killing a Chinese man during this period. So in this case, there's not even an issue of conviction or not. The guy confessed and has been witnessed by everybody in town, pretty much. But the lawyer successfully made the case that, yes, his client broke the law, but he shouldn't be sentenced for murder. Rather, he should be given the same sentence given to those who kill wild dogs or other pests. And amazingly enough, the judge said, yep, that makes perfect sense to me. So, you know, murdering a Chinese person was the equivalent of killing a stray dog in the eyes of the law at this time. This virulent racism got progressively worse until politicians smelled the blood and decided to champion a piece of legislation that was remarkably appalling, even when compared to the ultra-discriminatory legislations that were regularly approved in the 1800s. Now, in 1881, for the first time, they discussed in Congress banning altogether every single person coming from a certain place because of their ethnicity. And this was... The idea was, we don't want any more Chinese. Not a single one, not now, not ever, done. Doesn't matter, man, woman, young, old, rich, poor, as long as they are Chinese, they're out. There's a California senator by the name of John Miller said, why not discriminate? America is a land resonant with the sweet voices of flaxen-haired children. We must preserve American Anglo-Saxon civilization without contamination or adulteration from the gangrene of Oriental civilization. I mean, I'd even comment on a quote like that, you know, senator from California. Then again, not that weird when you consider that, for example, at this time, 
the governor of California was openly advocating genocide against Native Americans in the, actually a little earlier, we're talking about the 1850s for the genocide quotes, and I mean, this was par for the course during this time. Incidentally, this historical context is represented extremely well in the excellent TV series Warrior, produced by Shannon, Bruce Lee's daughter. I strongly recommend it. I got to watch season one. I'm looking forward to watching season two. I really enjoyed it. In any case, the Chinese Exclusion Act was eventually passed in 1882. And this was the beginning of a classic Catch-22 that's at the roots of all American immigration laws. And this is how it works. You know, on one end, you have big business that wants cheap labor. But of course, this creates, you know, if you import a bunch of workers for a particular nation, you're going to have poor white folks mad about the competition. So they would, you know, this will increase racism. As a result to all the complaints and the growing racism from poor white folks, politicians will have to respond to that. So eventually laws will be passed, kicking out members of a certain group, in this case through the Chinese Exclusion Act. However, that doesn't stop the big business thirst for cheap labor. They still need cheap labor, so they go somewhere else. And then they import a bunch of workers for this other nation, and then there's a backlash, and then there are immigration restrictions against them, and then they go somewhere else. And this cycle repeats over and over and over again. That's why when you hear about, you know, politicians have made a career since the 1800s about screaming loudly about crackdowns on immigration, the reality is that there's a very easy way to, if you don't want illegal immigration, there's a very easy way to do it, which is to give multi-million dollar fines to industries hiring undocumented workers. And the fact that that never happens tells you everything you need to know about the anti-immigration rhetoric that comes out of certain politicians. It's it's smoke and mirrors, it's not reality. There would be a way to do it if they wanted to, but of course that would require going against some major political interest and economic interest, often who put money into their into their coffers to run for elections. So, you know, they'll make their they'll put on a whole song and dance act about how they're gonna crack down on immigration. It's not real. Because simply for the fact that too many big industries in US depend on the cheap labor that is created by illegal immigration. So that's why it's all, you know, they have to put on the song and dance to make it look like they are doing something about it, but not that much in reality. In any case, uh, after Pearl Harbor, so fast forward by a lot, suddenly the Japanese were the bad guys, and so suddenly the Chinese were allies. So eventually the choice was made to repeal the Chinese Exclusion Act that essentially banned legal immigration in the United States throughout all this period. There would still be very limited immigration, but some. It wasn't really until 1965 that Chinese people would again have the option to migrate to the United States under the same limitations as anyone else, which, by the way, it's far from easy to migrate legally in the US, but at least it was possible. But thanks to his US citizenship, Bruce Lee arrived in May of 1959 after three weeks aboard a ship. He first landed in San Francisco and stayed there for a few weeks as a guest at the house of a friend of his father. 
Um, in the meantime, he figured he could earn some money by giving dancing lessons, so that's what he did. But after a little time in San Francisco, by the end of the summer, he moved to Seattle. And again, he stayed with family friends, since obviously he was not exactly swimming in gold there. So his father had a friend named uh, Pin Chao, who was also an opera performer. He and his wife Ruby hosted Bruce Lee. But of course, they required him to work as a waiter in the restaurant in exchange for the hospitality. This is not exactly a good fit. Uh, you know, customers regularly complained about his attitude because he was not a guy exactly very well suited to taking orders. Ruby Chow was not his biggest fan. Um, she did not like him, and the feeling was mutual. You know, Ruby would say that he was wild and undisciplined. He had no respect. Either way, he got his high school diploma in 18 months. Uh, by the way, attending briefly the same high school that Jimi Hendrix attended. Uh, and the two, by the way, even shared the same birthday, two years apart. Talk about wild coincidences. In any case, in the process of doing this, he improved his English considerably. And this was good and all, but he had something else to worry about that no graduation or improved language skills could fix. You know, leaving Hong Kong had meant leaving his martial arts teacher behind, as well as leaving all of his training partners. Now, for someone as obsessed with martial art practice as he was, this was a big blow. He had no teacher in the United States and no one to train with. Ed Lee decided that since he couldn't find any Wing Chun around, he would just enroll in Judo or Shotokan Karate or whatever else he could find, the history of modern martial arts may have turned out completely differently. But that's not what he did. He wasn't going to trade one style for another or one teacher for another. His experience in Wing Chun under Ip Man would remain unique. You know, never again would he be a student following the curriculum of an established system under a master for any serious length of time. You know, he dabbled here and there occasionally, but what he would do instead was to carve his own path. In saying this, I don't mean to imply he stopped learning, you know, far from it. He would continue learning for the rest of his life, but his approach to learning would be radically different from the norm. He would pick up movements, techniques, and ideas from other martial artists, while at the same time teaching them some of his stuff. Not exactly the typical path of students in martial arts schools. It's an old saying in education that the best way to learn something is to teach it, since the teaching process forces one to understand and learn a subject matter in a much deeper way than just by studying it. And so this is exactly what Bruce Lee did. Specifically, he started putting on martial arts demonstrations to test the public interest and eventually start uh, attracting students. And in this way, he could have training partners again and a chance to experiment outside of the confines of a single martial arts style. One of his first prospective students was an African-American man named Jesse Glover. He had had bad experiences with racist cops. In one occasion, a racist cop had broken his jaw with a club. And since then, he had been very interested in martial arts. 
he approached Bruce after a demonstration and inquired whether he would be willing to teach him. He had made the same request to several Asian teachers, but he was turned down almost every time. You know, he had managed to learn some judo while he was in the Air Force and even earned his black belt, but he wanted to learn Chinese martial arts, except that no one would accept him as a student. At the demonstration, he was blown away by the skills that Bruce Lee demonstrated, and he mustered the courage to approach him, despite the fact that the odds seemed high that he would just collect another rejection. But much to Glover's surprise, Bruce Lee instead seemed immune to the racism that characterized so many other teachers and accepted him. Before long, Jesse's roommate, Ed Hart, also joined their training sessions. And soon after that, they began attracting others who were impressed with Bruce Lee's skills. Among these early students was Taki Kimura. As a Japanese-American man who had been a teenager when World War II had broken out, Kimura had the bad luck to experience firsthand the internment camps where most Japanese-Americans were rounded up during the war. These, coupled with plenty of encounters with racism afterwards, deeply scarred him and left him heavily depressed. As he would later say, I had no self-esteem. I ceased to be a human being. When a Caucasian came up behind me, I had to step aside and let him pass, since I was not worthy. This was Kimura's mindset around the time when he met Bruce Lee in 1959. Taki was quite a bit older than Bruce Lee, but uh, Lee took him under his wing and was able to make him get over his inferiority complex. In some way, he injected him with a ton of self-esteem by teaching him practical martial arts skills and constantly sharing his enthusiasm and passion. Probably it's no exaggeration to say that meeting Bruce Lee was a life-changing experience for Kimura. Um, he later would be one of only three men certified by Bruce Lee to teach, and he was the best man at Bruce Lee's wedding. But back in 1959, uh, Taki Kimura was one of the few who would become part of Bruce Lee's inner circle. Initially, it was just a small group of guys united by admiration for, for Lee's skills, and, and they were interested in learning. A few of them were Caucasians, uh, most were from ethnic minorities, and most of them had plenty of experience with racial prejudice, something that bonded some of them together. But yeah, they are ethnically an extremely diverse group, which was quite uncommon. Maybe it would be tempting to say never before, now under the never say never file, you never know, maybe it happened before, but it was definitely an extremely uncommon thing. For quite a while, they practiced in parks and garages, until eventually they were able to gather enough money together to rent a place in Seattle Chinatown in 1962. What Bruce Lee was teaching them was a modified variation of Wing Chun, which included much of the Wing Chun curriculum he had learned, but also some of his own experiments. Already at this stage, no longer having a teacher, Bruce Lee was beginning to remove stuff that didn't make sense to him and add the things he picked up from other sources or from his own experiments. 
classes were as much an opportunity for him to try out things than they were about teaching his students. You know, most of them were tough individuals who already knew how to handle themselves on the street. Some of them possessed some skills that Lee himself was interested in and quickly picked up on. Most of them were much bigger than the average Chinese, and so this forced Lee to adapt traditional techniques to taller and larger people. In the process of this, he was exposed to judo and boxing through his students, and he really liked both. Many people say that he possessed the same characteristics as many great martial artists, which he would see a movement once and he would be able to replicate it. As uh, Glover would later put it, we are all dummies for Bruce to train on. And uh, author Charles Russo adds, open to drawing on more than just classical winchon, Bruce began to evolve what he was practicing. He did so to adjust to the size of Western opponents and to achieve progress that was no longer available through traditional study with a teacher such as Ip Man. It was an approach, a kind of permanent evolution that would last the rest of his life, characterize his own art, and eventually help him create a new paradigm in the field itself. He called this art Jun Fan Kung Fu, which literally translated as Bruce Lee's Kung Fu. On one particular occasion, the crowd at a demo didn't seem thrilled with what he was showing and didn't care for his verbal explanations. So reading the room, Bruce Lee decided to switch tactics. He called for one of the biggest guys in attendance to step up and try to hit him. Which, of course, this perks everybody's curiosity of the spectators. Particularly since the man was a certain James DeMille, who stood about 7 inches taller than Bruce Lee and probably 80 pounds heavier. He was a former heavyweight boxing champion in the Air Force. So, you know, this was an interesting challenge. People wanted to see what was going on. Now, Bruce Lee, in fact, despite his uh, famous pictures displaying in, you know, insanely ripped muscle, was never a big guy. At about 5'7", maybe, who knows, there are all sorts of theories at how tall he was, but somewhere around there, and probably about 140 pounds, you know, when facing against a heavyweight, it was almost ridiculous, you know, the meal towered over him. And no doubt, quite a few in attendance anticipated that the meal would squash Bruce Lee and just kick him off stage. But Lee was able to easily deflect his strikes and counter him every time. The meal, however, took it in stride, you know, rather than seeing it as a humiliating experience, as it kind of was, if one was inclined to take it that way, he chose to see it as an opportunity to learn, so he joined the group. But uh, unfortunately for him, poor James DeMille was always getting beat up by Lee, wanting to demonstrate, particularly when a woman was around, because, you know, beating up the big guy always looked impressive. Speaking of demonstrating, uh, one thing that always captivated the crowd was the Bruce Lee display of what you would call the one-inch punch. You know, everyone understood the power of a punch thrown from far away using momentum and speed to generate KO power. But Bruce Lee instead would place his fingertips on the target and deliver his strike with no cocking back the fist at all. 
So he would regularly pick the biggest guy in the auditorium and ask him if he could use him for a demo. He would place a chair five feet back and despite the guy bracing for the strike, he would send him flying backwards. Again, not everybody was a fan. In one occasion, there was a Japanese black belt in karate and judo named uh, Yoichi Nakachi, who didn't take too kindly to Bruce Lee's criticism of Japanese martial arts. Nakachi would often argue with Lee during demonstrations more than once and repeatedly challenge him. Considering Bruce Lee's temper and enthusiasm for getting into face-punching contests, it's a miracle that he ignored the challenges and, and actually let things go as many times as he did. But eventually Nakachi pushed him just one time too many, and Lee got annoyed and said there was only one way to find out who was right. So they agreed to some rules for the match that they would take place in a handball court at the YMCA. The fight was, well, basically if you blinked you missed it. Bruce Lee KO'd his opponent within seconds with the straight blast, which is a classic Wing Chun technique, where basically the fist, the almost like mashing gun-like, come down the center one after another and finish the fight with a kick to the face. Witnesses say that Nakachi was out cold for a while. So this was a good reminder for anyone doubting his skills, much like Nakachi had done. Lee was definitely not intimidated when he actually had to back up his claims, and he clearly had what it took to do it. In the spare time he had left when he wasn't busy creatively rearranging other fighters' faces and downsizing their egos, Bruce Lee managed to be admitted to the University of Washington in 1961. One of the subjects he was most drawn to was philosophy in particularly Asian philosophies such as Taoism and Zen Buddhism. These would remain a lifelong passion of his. Many people who get to know Bruce Lee for his films and for martial arts were not aware that Bruce Lee was an avid reader whose personal library would end up including over 2,500 books, many of them about philosophy. So he was kind of a weird mix of a street fighter with a chip on his shoulders and a Taoist philosopher, so all rolled into one. While in university, beside developing a passion for philosophy, he also developed a passion for a Japanese-American lady named uh, Amy Sanbo. She was a fellow student at the university and she was also a dancer, a singer, a writer and an artist. The two of them quickly fell in love and were in a relationship for quite a while. She would later say about Bruce Lee, More than anything else, what I like most about Bruce was that he never apologized for being oriental. In a time when so many Asians were trying to convince themselves they were white, Bruce was so proud to be Chinese, he was busting with it. But she herself was an interesting character, you know, unlike many women of the era who thought of little else beside getting a good husband and settling down, she was as independent as it got, something that both fascinated Bruce Lee and troubled him, since he was used to being the center of attention. Amy certainly liked Bruce Lee a lot, but she had no interest in making her whole life revolve around him. 
he seemed to want her to become kind of a doting wife and possibly expected her to set aside her own ambitions as a writer and a dancer. You know, more than once he hinted at marriage, and each time Amy replied she wasn't so sure that's what she wanted. Eventually, after she graduated, because she was a year ahead of Bruce, she received a job offer in New York that was perfectly suited for her artistic talent. He tried to propose one more time, but she turned him down again and chose to leave instead. You know, she had loved him a lot, but didn't want her whole existence to narrow down to being Mrs. Bruce Lee. Uh, she wanted her own life, which kind of reminds me, there's a great song by American Indian poet and activist John Trudell, who uh, wrote this uh, beautiful song called Beauty in a Fade, and there's a couple of lines from there where it said, once they share the same dream, ends up, they both had canvas of their own, and their own paint. Then they saw they only brought one frame, her part of the dream alone was bigger than that. Which seems very fitting for what was going on in this situation. By the way, if you've never checked out John Trudell's poetry and music, I strongly recommend him. Either way, she left him in 1963, and he was seriously heartbroken about this. I'm a big fan of the idea that travel is great medicine for heartache, and Bruce Lee apparently felt similarly since in 1963 he took a three months vacation to return to Hong Kong, his first time back home since he had left in 1959. The last time that his family had seen him, Bruce was still a bit of a thug and definitely without a clear sense of direction. By 1963, his family, including his father, had reasons to be proud. He was in an American university, was earning money teaching martial arts, and most importantly, he seemed to have a sense of direction. And even his love life, that had just taken a big hit, courtesy of Amy Sanbo, was about to bounce back in a big way since he was soon to meet his future wife, Linda Emery. Technically, they had already met, or at least she had definitely noticed him. Bruce, in fact, had visited her school to give a martial arts demonstration. As Linda tells the story, the first time I saw Bruce, he was standing at the end of a long hallway at Garfield High School in Seattle, Washington. I was 17 years old and a senior. He was 22 and a sophomore at the University of Washington. I was talking with several girlfriends when I looked up and said, Who's that? A Chinese-American friend of Linda, who was named uh, Suan Kay, replied that he was her Kung Fu teacher. Now, despite the challenges of having grown up fairly poor, Linda was an excellent student, so thanks to her grades a few months later, she ended up at the same university where Bruce studied. And before long, by August 1963, when her friend Swan mentioned going to Kung Fu class, Linda remembered a charming and muscular guy who had visited her school to do a demonstration, so she decided to tag along and begin training as well. Most of the students in the class would hang out with Bruce after training. They would all go out to eat together, watch movies, chat about philosophy, sports, you name it. So within that contest, it was easy 
even for someone as quiet and reserved as Linda, to get to know Bruce Lee well. Within a few weeks, he asked her out on a date, and Linda's somewhat shy demeanor was no obstacle on their dates since, as she puts it, Bruce could speak enough for both of them. <laughs> Which is pretty funny. Now, 1964 was going to be a key year in Bruce Lee's life, and Linda was going to feature prominently in it. There's a book by Charles Russo entitled Striking Distance that is entirely dedicated to that single year in Bruce Lee's life. Uh, it was that eventful. To start things out, by spring, Bruce Lee was mulling a radical change. Despite being not terribly far from completing the requirements to graduate, he planned to drop out of college in order to move to Oakland and open a second martial arts school with James Lee. Same last name, but no relationship to Bruce. He wasn't planning on closing his Seattle school. He would still visit and supervise the training, but would leave the day-to-day -day operations in the hands of his friend Taki Kimura. Not enough people were into martial arts in Seattle at the time, and Bruce Lee felt that, you know, he kind of felt the need to move his operations to a place with a more vibrant martial arts scene. And there really was no place in the United States that fit the bill better than California at that time. The man I just mentioned, James Lee, who was in his mid-40s at this time, was a highly skilled, lifelong martial artist, who was also a publisher and author of books on the topic of martial arts. And he was particularly interested in modernizing martial arts training. You know, he was less... Uh, he unlike the traditional Chinese martial arts ideas, just spending months in horse stance or in all this kind of preparation work. He wanted martial art training to be more like boxing, where you start learning how to fight on day one and you can spar rather quickly. So he and his students were people looking to improve fighting skills. They craved effectiveness over the flowery stuff that they saw in many martial arts schools. Just like Bruce Lee, James had studied classical forms of Kung Fu, but wanted something more modern. Already back in 1962, James was constantly on the lookout for something in the martial art world that resonated with his approach, and asked a friend visiting Seattle to check out Bruce Lee, since he had heard a lot about him. His friend reported back that Bruce was the real deal, so James decided to visit, and the two became fast friends. Author Charles Russo writes, Bruce stood there, a full two decades younger than James, a college student settling into adulthood, greeting a family man years into a nine-to-five career. Even still, it was a fateful meeting, and the beginning of a fraternal relationship that would mark the remainder of both of their lives. Thanks to James, Bruce published his book called The Chinese Kung Fu, The Philosophical Art of Self-Defense in 1963. In the book, he, he went hard. He levels some really heavy criticism against the 
needlessly complicated techniques that were pushed by more the more traditional schools. Something that would make him loved by some, but also hated by many, many others. James also introduced Bruce to many of his contacts in the martial art world. In late 1963, for example, Bruce and James visited Ed Parker. Ed Parker was the founder of American Kempo Karate and was also known as Elvis Presley's teacher. As time went by, James began selling Bruce on the idea of moving to Oakland and opening a school together. James basically agreed to turn his garage into kind of the second branch of the Jun Fan Kung Fu Institute. Bruce would live in Oakland for a while to help launch it. Uh, in an odd move, I mean, maybe not odd, but kind of, uh, James was willing to be Bruce Lee's assistant. Even though he was about 20 years older and he had trained in martial arts a lot longer than Bruce had. Because he said he learned more in the time he spent with Bruce than in the entire rest of his earlier martial arts career, which says a lot about Bruce Lee's skills at this time. James declared, The superiority of his Kung Fu is more refined and effective than that which I have learned in all my years. I have changed all my Kung Fu techniques to his methods. So eventually they did this, you know, they they went for it and they would this planned school that they had first in the garage and so on would be opened and in July 1964. For Bruce, this was obviously a tempting opportunity. You know, again, author Charles Rousseau, who I'm going to use a lot for this particular part of uh, Bruce Lee's life since he dedicated so much attention to the year 1964. In any case, Rousseau writes, James Lee and his colleagues in the Bay Area represented a fresh opportunity for him. Already critical of the traditional masters, yet anxious to learn from experienced practitioners, Bruce discovered the next logical step in his martial arts evolution. Having spent his teen years within Hong Kong's rooftop fighting culture, while also studying under Ip Man, Bruce then honed his skills by practicing against the raw toughness of Seattle street fighters. The colleagues Bruce was now discovering in Oakland via James Lee represented an entirely new dynamic. In addition to being older and formally accomplished, the East Bay camp embodied the kind of modern martial arts mindset that Bruce was seeking. And then he goes on and says, Yet they would regard Bruce not as a student but as an equal and a colleague. Collectively, they would immerse themselves in an exchange of ideas that look more to the future of martial arts than to its past. And so by May 1964, Bruce Lee was ready to move to Oakland to open things up with James. This, of course, raised a big question mark regarding his relationship with Linda. They were quite in love with each other, but they hadn't been together that long. So Linda wasn't really all that clear if he was moving away for good or not, and probably things weren't really that clear in Bruce's head either. He thought about marrying her, but also wanted to be more well, to kind of to be more well established first, to make some money, to have some more security. 
However, Linda getting pregnant definitely added some weight and urgency to the decision-making. Bruce's friend, Taki Kimura, just told him, marry Linda right away, since you're not gonna find anyone better than her. And Bruce agreed, and so he asked her to marry him. Now, Linda's mother had not even been aware of the relationship since uh, Linda and Bruce had decided to keep it a secret for a while. Linda figured she would just elope with Bruce and drop the news later. But she hadn't counted on the fact that when you applied for marriage license, which they did in August, there was a three-day waiting period before you were allowed to marry. In the meantime, local newspapers would publish your name in the vital statistics section, which, I mean, today, if you say, who among you has has read the vital statistics section of your local newspaper, I'm gonna bet that is at 0.0%, but that wasn't the case back then, and apparently Linda Sand was a big fan of reading that. No idea why, but in any case. And so she found out and told everyone, Upon finding out that her daughter was pregnant and about to marry some Chinese guy she had never heard of, Linda's mom was not quite thrilled. So there was an emergency meeting with several family members, all trying to persuade Linda to change her mind. Linda's mom was primarily mad about being deceived. She was just not happy about that part of the story. Bruce's family... You know, the Lee family back in Hong Kong, they would have much preferred if he married a Chinese woman, but ultimately, through a letter, they said that they were okay with it. They they were not particularly opposed. Things in US, on the other hand, look a bit different. The Linda's family was far from happy about it. Particularly an aunt and an uncle, the two of them were strongly against interracial marriages based on their religious ideas. You know, interracial marriages were very frowned upon at this time. They were still illegal in 17 states, if you can believe it. It's uh, not until 1967 when the Supreme Court got rid of laws against interracial marriages. So, again, you know, today you talk about an interracial marriage. It's like, eh, you know. Not exactly a big deal, but this was the early 1960s and it was a big deal. Linda's conservative Christian uncle told her, This is against the word of God. God does not want the races to mix. You're committing a sin. Linda was not against Christianity, but her interpretation of Christianity was radically different and... She basically argued that she didn't believe that God was against the marriage of human beings who love one another. You know, her uncle quoted from Deuteronomy with all its injunctions against intermarriage. By the way, speaking of biblical stuff, anytime you hear somebody quoting from Deuteronomy, it's time to probably run for your life because it's always used to justify some of the more regressive policies ever, in this case strongly against interracial marriage. Linda, however, quoted from different parts of the Bible. You know, she figured, we're gonna fight over this, let's do this, let's use the same material. But she argued all the things, like some of the parts from the New Testament, arguing things like, 
God wants you to treat all people equally and there is no, you know, slave or master or female or male in the eyes of God, that kind of thing. So the family kept trying to break her down and threatened to disown her. But she basically said, okay, do what you have to do. You know, I'm going to marry him anyway. Eventually, the uncle just refused to speak. Um, just no, Well, it would have been nice if he just refused to speak, period. No, specifically, he just refused to speak to her until quite a few years later. Uh, the mom, on the other hand, she just threw in the towel and accepted it. And eventually, she would grow to love Bruce Lee quite a bit. And Linda herself, she would turn out to be Bruce's best supporter. As uh, Taki Kimura would say, Nobody has ever given Linda the credit she deserves. This woman has been one hell of a pillar of strength. I don't think Bruce would have aspired to the heights that he did without her support. But that was still in the future. Uh, for the time being, they had no money, they had a baby coming, and they were essentially college dropouts. They moved in with James Lee's family to save some money. And to make the whole situation even rougher, James' wife at this time had terminal cancer. So Linda basically went from being uh, the beginning of her college career to just taking care of house and the kids of the Lee family. Among the people James Lee introduced Bruce to was Wally J. And uh, Wally J was of Hawaiian and Chinese descent and he taught Judo and Danzan Ryu Jiu-Jitsu. What made Wally J particularly interesting to Bruce Lee was that, unlike many of the martial artists of the era, he was not afraid to modify and modernize styles. Author Charles Russo writes, Bruce felt that he had found another like-minded peer, similar to James Lee, in the way that Wally was always reevaluating his art, constantly pushing for it to evolve beyond its current incarnation. In fact, when Wally's son returned home from college, the family's jiu-jitsu system had evolved so much that it appeared foreign to him. As Bruce was becoming an increasingly vocal critic of what he saw as the static and ineffective nature of traditional martial arts, these Oakland practitioners appeal to him as the antidote. Tangible examples of how innovative and modern approaches could be effectively applied as real-world fighting principles. Conversely, they saw something special in Bruce, not merely in the sense of a talented colleague, but something far greater, a sort of profound potential, the might just render a one-in-a-billion trajectory. So in addition to exchanging ideas and techniques with Wally J, Bruce Lee would benefit from their interaction in yet another way. Wally regularly hosted a luau that attracted a who's who of martial arts. About a thousand people typically attended to watch some of the best martial artists on the West Coast show off their stuff. And Bruce Lee would have a chance to step up in front of this audience at the 1964 Wally J. Luau. By this time, 
his approach was less about shining a spotlight on Chinese martial arts in general and Wing Chun in specific, and more about criticizing the dogmatism common to many martial arts schools and inviting a more modern, syncretic approach. Needless to say, this attracted both much interest and a whole lot of hatred. You know, why the hatred? Well, think about it. Just many didn't think kindly to some young guy who had been alive less than they had been training, now lecturing them about their methodologies. And that's exactly what Bruce Lee was doing at Wally J's Luau when his turn came up to demonstrate. Charles Russo described the scene as follows. Martial artists, like so many of the Asian cultures they sprang from, were not receptive to boasts or put-downs, particularly from younger quarters. And Bruce was dealing heavily in each regard. After concluding his performance and dismissal of other fighting styles, Bruce began to explain the dynamics of the style he taught as his school in Seattle, where the emphasis was on streamlining everything to a tangible effectiveness economy of movement and direct attacks. The focus was on speed and power, no acrobatics, no fancy forms, no excess. The most results for the least effort. Finally, he gave a demonstration. Calling up a sizable male volunteer from the front of the stage, Bruce challenged him to block his punch. He explained to the crowd how he would close the gap between them from a wide distance and successfully strike his opponent with a tag to the forehead. The entire move was explained. The volunteer and the crowd knew Bruce's objective. So he asked if the volunteer was ready, and then in a tidy blur he was across the stage to tap his opponent an instant ahead of his block. The crowd murmured their surprise. Bruce's speed was stunning. Now let's do it again. They reset. Ready? Again, Bruce moved with blinding speed, like a fencer going for the final point. His opponent tried to compensate with an early move, and Bruce reassessed in microseconds, waiting for his block to pass before he tagged him again. Same spot. So this clearly struck a chord. Both his skills attracted attention as well as his uh, heavy criticism of traditional martial arts. In some ways, the demonstration at Wally J's Luau was like a dress rehearsal for the event that would catapult Lee into taking his first step toward superstardom. This took place in the summer of 1964 in Long Beach, California, a city where I've lived for many years, where my daughter was born, and where I still teach university over there. A man we mentioned a little bit ago, Mr. Ed Parker, the teacher to so many stars and the creator of American Kempo Karate, organized an event known as the Long Beach International Karate Championships. Parker was a pro at attracting media attention, so thousands were expected to gather for this event. Some of the most famous names in martial arts across the United States at the time converged there. You know, this was like Wally J's Luau to the 10th power. 
um, he really brought together much of the American martial arts world. So since Parker wanted some of the top martial artists to demonstrate their talent in front of fans and Hollywood agents, upon James Lee's request, Parker agreed to invite Bruce. In some ways, Bruce seemed like an odd fit. He despised the kind of light contact, point-based karate competition where, in the name of safety, they would stop the action after each successful strike. In his mind, this was completely unrealistic. He didn't like too many rules limiting the action. He wanted a fight to be a real fight, with the outcome obvious to everyone once the dust settled. Point sparring karate instead just didn't allow for that kind of decisive action, and you know, effectiveness remained nothing but a point for debate among judges. So he wasn't going to participate in what he considered a painful distortion of actual martial arts. However, he was not opposed to putting on a demonstration in front of such a great crowd. So the night prior to the event, Many of the stars of the tournament, along with plenty of Parker's own students, hanged out together in the hotel ballroom to trade the techniques, chat things up, and demonstrate their skills. Bruce Lee gave them a, de- a preview of what he would show the following day. His performance immediately attracted attention and started creating a buzz about him. Sutomo Hoshima one of the most renowned masters of Shotokan Karate in America, was not an easy man to please. His martial arts standards were notoriously high. But that night, he pointed toward Bruce and told a friend, that one is the only one here that can do anything. He was not the only one among those who would become legendary figures in the American martial arts world to be impressed with Lee. You know, Bruce Lee ended up befriending John Ree, also known as the father of American Taekwondo. Also, same story with Ed Parker. Ed Parker had actually assigned one of his students, Danny Nosanto. He had given him the job of driving Bruce Lee around and making sure he was fed and taken care of. Bruce Lee, of course, was physiologically incapable of having a conversation with a fellow martial artist that quickly didn't turn into a testing of skills. The standard intro conversation that Bruce would have with anyone remotely interested in martial arts was uh, hit me as hard as you can. And Dan Inosanto tried, but was shocked by the results. Inosanto tells, I was completely flabbergasted. He controlled me like a baby. I couldn't do anything with him at all. He didn't really have to use much force either. He just sort of body controlled me. I'd lost to other people before, but not in the way that I lost to him. He was dominating the action completely, calling all the shots like it was a game. I couldn't sleep that night. It seemed as though everything I'd done in the past was obsolete. So as a result of this, Inosanto would later become a student of Bruce Lee and one of the main people to carry on his teachings down to the present day. So in light of these comments, it may be worth to address, at least briefly, the never-ending arguments about Bruce Lee's fighting skills, 
which range from the he was invincible, he could walk on water and was the greatest ever, to he didn't know anything about fighting, he was just an actor who had no fighting skills whatsoever. As you may imagine, both stances are ridiculous. In some way I can help but feel weird when people even entertain that question you know anyone who has ever been around fighting knows that there is no such a thing as an invincible fighter you know the best fighter in the world one day is not the best on a different day everyone loses if they fight enough times also as far ahead of his times as he was bruce lee was very limited in his grappling training and was primarily a striker Having said that, on the other hand, the folks who try to deny that Bruce Lee did indeed possess some serious fighting skills have to ignore the comments of pretty much anyone who trained with him. Everyone commented on his insane punching power for someone of that frame. Also, everyone commented on his insane speed. There was just, you know, the speed at which he moved was something that was the stuff of legends. He would uh, put a coin in someone's palm, tell them to close the palm before he could get it, and he would still did it. Taki Kimura said a lot of people took exception, but when they saw what he could do, they all wanted to join him. And another famous martial artist, Bob Wall, said, the only thing I hate about Bruce is he can do anything he says. So clearly... He was skilled. Now, just how skilled? Of course, no one can tell with any degree of certainty, and ultimately doesn't even matter, since the impact that he had and the importance of his life were clearly, they were not things that were dependent just on his technical knowledge or his fighting skills. That was certainly a part of it, but probably not even the biggest thing. Either way, on the following day, during a break in the tournament. Parker introduced Bruce Lee himself, talked about him a little bit, and then started uh, his demo. Taki Kimura was to be Lee's assistant during the demonstration. So Lee did this uh, one-inch punch that sent a volunteer flying over the chair that was designed to catch his fall. He did uh, two-finger push-ups on one hand, because, you know, two-finger push-ups on both hands is too easy. So, I mean, it's one of the things that just watching the video hurts me. It's like, how is... it's unreal, pretty much. And then he put on a Wing Chun demonstration. At his top there, he would have received praise for his physical and technical skills, and that would have been it. But much like he had done at Wally J's Luau, Bruce also delivered a ruthless, take-no-prisoners kind of lecture against traditional martial arts. It was precisely because he loved martial arts that he could be brutal in his criticism of those he felt were watering down the effectiveness of the arts. In one occasion, he had said, of all the athletes in the world, only in the martial arts, do they come so fat and in poor condition? And you know what? They are usually the instructors. Yep, only in the martial arts can the instructor get away with it, because he can bluff his way with his mouth. 
He doesn't have to prove himself. He doesn't have to spar. He just has to convince his students that he's indestructible and who's going to challenge him. These guys are all too ritualistic with their bowing and posturing. At the Long Beach tournament, he was a little bit more diplomatic than this, but not by much. You know, he would say things like, teachers should never impose their favorite patterns on their students. They should be finding out what works for them and what doesn't work for them. The individual is more important than the style. And as Danny Nosanto explained, that Bruce was heavily into the idea of personalizing the system. And by the same token, that's not what most instructors did. When Nosanto says if a technique was done a certain way in Japan, then it was expected that everyone would do it that way. And Bruce saw this as robotic. All the practitioners had the same look. So this kind of speech was obviously very polarizing. He had a very abrasive style, and anytime he opened his mouth, controversy followed. This event was the beginning of his fame, both in the martial arts world and in Hollywood. As it turns out, a man by the name of Jay Sebring was uh, known as kind of the hair stylist to the stars. He styled the hair and cut the hair for Frank Sinatra, Jim Morrison, Marlon Brando. You know, his clientele was the top of the top in Hollywood. He had seen Bruce's demo and he decided to talk with some of his clients about it. Sebring, by the way, would later fall in love with actress Sharon Tate, and would eventually be killed by Charles Manson's followers on their infamous murdering spree in 1969, one of the most dramatic murders of the era. But that was still in the future. Uh, we'll get to that. For the time being, he was destined to play a huge role in cracking open the door for Bruce in Hollywood. One of his clients, in fact, was the producer William Dozier, was looking for an action-oriented Asian actor. So Sebrin said, well, look no further, check out this guy Bruce Lee. This was kind of an appeal battle since there were no, you know, Asian male stars in American TVs, they were just not a thing. There had never been a single Asian male that starred in an American TV series. So despite his acting background growing up, Bruce had hadn't really given a thought to becoming an actor in the United States. He had been focused on nothing but martial arts until this point. But the call he received from Dozier after the Long Beach demonstration sparked that fire in him. But before that chapter in Lee's life would begin, 1964 saw another pivotal incident in his life taking place. He would start again with a martial arts demonstration. And again, he would feature Bruce Lee's brand of less-than-diplomatic, highly confrontational criticism of traditional martial arts. This time, however, things would not end there. His words on stage would lead to an escalation resulting in a full-fledged fight. 
It all started with Bruce Lee's father's show business contacts back in Hong Kong, hooking Bruce up with a gig. Specifically, Diana Chang Chung Wen, top actress of Hong Kong cinema, was about to go on a three-month US tour to promote her new film. Since Bruce was a phenomenal dancer, he was hired to dance the cha-cha with her on stage every night. And because of his skills in martial arts, he was also to act as her bodyguard. So toward the end of August, the tour was scheduled for an evening at the Sun Sing Theater in San Francisco. The theater was packed, and Bruce used the occasion to deliver a martial arts performance at the end of the regular program in order to publicize his Oakland school. This was a, definitely a good possible place to recruit students, but also there were a lot of traditional martial artists in attendance, so it could possibly be a hostile environment. Neither James Lee nor Taki Kimura were available, so he asked Danny Santo to assist him with the demonstration. By this point, rumors had been circulating in Chinatown regarding Bruce Lee's very public criticism of traditional martial arts. Most of the old masters were not pleased with what they had heard. Bruce Lee was just in his mid-twenties, only had a few years of formal training under a recognized master, and had never received a teaching license. Yet, he was quite vocal in criticizing old masters and their methodologies, even suggesting that his own approach made more sense. So many of the masters had heard the story, but they were curious to see if Bruce would have the guts to repeat the same offensive words right smack in the middle of San Francisco's Chinatown. As usual, the beginning of the demonstration proceeded with no incidents. No, Lee demonstrated some Wing Chun. Okay, so far so good. Then he demonstrated some Northern Shaolin, which would have been just fine with the old masters. Had Lee not followed up his Northern Shaolin set by commenting at how impractical and ineffective he was. He just put on this big show, everybody's clapping, and he's saying, you guys kidding? This is crap. And just in case the comments may have flown under the radar, he added that, I quote, 80% of what they are teaching is nonsense. Uh, speaking of what they are teaching in Hong Kong. So 80% of what they are teaching over there is nonsense. Here in America, it is 90%. And to drive the nail in the coffin, he also added, these old tigers, probably referring to the Chinatown's old masters, they have no teeth. Many reacted, as you may imagine. Anger, screaming, some people threw lit cigarettes on stage to express their displeasure. Not in the slightest intimidated. Bruce concluded by saying, I would like to let everybody know that any time my Chinatown brothers want to try out my Wing Chun, they are welcome to come find me at my school in Oakland. Now, that statement was... At best, ambiguous. You know, was he inviting prospective students to try out his Wing Chun, or was he issuing an open challenge to anyone in Chinatown? Well, it's kind of anybody's guess. While others were bothered 
by Bruce Lee's attitude, but inclined to let it go, a certain David Chin, a young student under some of the traditional masters, chose to interpret this in the worst possible light. Chin and some of his friends met with a man named Wong Jackman, a 23-year-old Northern Shaolin practitioner, who was gaining some reputation as a skilled martial artist and who had recently arrived from Hong Kong. Chin and his friends were looking to recruit someone into challenging Bruce Lee. So the exact reasons for the fight remain up for debate. You know, depending on who you ask, you get all sorts of answers. One of the theories is that some of the Chinatown masters were upset with Bruce Lee because he was teaching non-Chinese students. Bruce's wife, Linda, definitely argues that this was the case. Others have suggested that while teaching non-Chinese was controversial, it was not unique, and definitely not enough to cause a challenge since a few teachers had already started doing it. According to this interpretation, the challenge that was to follow had nothing to do with teaching Westerners and everything to do with Bruce Lee's attitude and his respect toward traditional arts. Another interpretation is that Wong was a pawn in a game, that it was actually Chin who had wanted to see the fight happen and simply recruited Wong to act as his muscle. And another yet is that Wong wanted to give up his job as a waiter and open a school, so he figured that a win over Bruce Lee would give him some fame. Some people also suggest that as a staunch traditionalist, Wong saw Lee as a rebel who needed to be taught a lesson. Whatever the truth may be, what's undisputed is that Chin hand-delivered a letter to Bruce Lee in Oakland, issuing a challenge. I brought the note to Bruce Lee, Chin says, and he looked at it and laughed, and said, okay, set the date. Um, Lee refused to fight in Chinatown and insisted that since they challenged him, they should come to him. Things at this time were really tough for him, you know, things were not going great. His business partner, James Lee, had just lost his wife. Linda was coming close to the end of her pregnancy. He still had few students in Oakland, and if he lost the fight, he would probably lose the few students he had and, and would end up losing the school. So basically his dreams would crumble if he did poorly. So he really was not in a position where he could afford to lose the fight. Eventually one Jackman showed up at Bruce Lee's school in Oakland on a day in November. Five friends came with him. On his side, Bruce Lee only had a very pregnant Linda and James Lee. Just in case things got out of hand, and just in the odd scenario that one Jackman and his guys pulled out weapons, James Lee had a gun stashed away. Because you never know. After one Jackman and his five friends walked in, James Lee locked the door behind them. A clear signal that he was way too late to turn back now. In the following years, one Jackman would say he hadn't really looked to challenge Bruce Lee, and instead had only wanted to spar in friendly fashion. 
but his buddy David Chin disagrees. He says, it was not a friendly atmosphere. The challenge was real. So the whole scene was real heavy with the threat of imminent violence. But despite being late in her pregnancy, Linda was the only woman there, remembers being eerily calm. She wrote, I suppose I should have been nervous. Yet the truth is that I could have not been calmer. I was not in the least concerned for Bruce. I was absolutely certain that he could take care of himself. So after walking in, Chin tried to ease the vibe by talking with Bruce Lee. But Bruce was in no mood for that. He just brushed him off saying, shut your mouth. You have already gotten your friend killed. So Bruce Lee just wanted to know if one Jack man had been at the demonstration at the Sun Singh Theater or not. And one Jack man admitted that he hadn't been there, which confirmed for Bruce Lee that either one Jack man was being manipulated by his friends or he was just trying to make a name for himself off Lee's reputation. So again, Chin tried to step in, trying to lay out the rules for the fight. And again, Bruce Lee told him to get lost. He said, you came to my school to challenge me, and now you want to set the rules? As far as I'm concerned, there are no rules. It's all out. So both Wong Jack Man and Bruce Lee were from Hong Kong. Other than that, they really couldn't have been more different. Wong Jack Man showed up in the traditional Kung Fu uniform. Bruce Lee was in tank top and jeans. Style-wise, Wong Jack Man was all about kind of long-range kicks typical of northern Chinese martial arts, whereas Bruce Lee was much more focused on uh, hand techniques, punching techniques from southern Chinese martial arts. From a strategic point of view, Wong Jack Man had, uh, had reach. You know, he had the longer arms, which meant that Lee needed to get closer. What happened at this time changes radically, as it often does in these cases, depending on who you ask. You know, the only thing they all agree on is that Bruce Lee landed the first punch. But according to Wong Jack Man, he was just trying to shake hands when Bruce Lee hit him. Of course, the story out of Bruce Lee's camp is that the fight had started, and Lee simply beat one Jack Man to the punch. One Jack Man seemed to have been freaked out by the intensity of it all, and as he would later say, he really wanted to kill me. Now, typically, Bruce Lee had been able to finish his previous fights very quickly. But unlike Bruce Lee's previous opponents, one Jack Man started backpedaling, you know, not engaging and at some point flat out running away. So in the course of his retreat, One Jack Man managed to land a strike with some uh, leather wrist bracelet that had metal studs in it that were hidden under the sleeves of his uniform. This enraged Lee, even further than he was already, since the way he saw it, One Jack Man was basically using a weapon. So as Lee chased him around the school, Wong Jack Man tripped and fell to the floor, and Lee got on top of him, unleashed what in modern MMA they would call ground and pound, and after hitting him enough times, he yelled at him in Cantonese if he was ready to give up. Um, David Chin said from there, he, meaning Wong Jack Man, said he gives up, 
and we stop the fight. So that was it. Now, despite technically having won, Bruce Lee was disappointed in himself. You know, the fight had turned into a chaotic mess with little technique on display. More importantly, Lee had spent much more energy than anticipated chasing one Jack man around and was winded after a few minutes. He was so used to finishing fights within seconds that he had really not paced himself and was tired. So this would spark a profound transformation in Bruce Lee's approach to fighting. Up until this point, he had modified Wing Chun a little bit, but had still remained at the core a Wing Chun fighter, and he had not taken his cardio conditioning as seriously as he probably should have been. Because, you know, the reality is he never needed to. You know, fights were over in a matter of seconds, boom, done, why would you need the cardio for that? But immediately following the fight, he started working harder on his conditioning, you know, including running several miles every day, jumping rope, using an exercise bike, whole bunch of other things. He also added taking vitamins, watching his nutrition more carefully, lifting weights. And this sparked a pretty dramatic transformation in Bruce Lee's physique. You know, he was always a wiry, thin, muscular guy, but within a few years, he developed incredible muscular definition. Um, even though he never became a big guy, you know, he never, he was never above 145 pounds. Also, he grew disillusioned with Wing Chun, and this led him toward accelerating his break with traditional systems of martial arts. He wrote to his uh, friend and, you know, kind of one of the guys who introduced him to Wing Chun, uh, William Chong, to tell him that he was now past training in Chinese traditional martial arts. And in a letter to Taki Kimura, Bruce Lee announced his intention to create a new approach to martial arts for himself. You know, its initial base would definitely rest on some Wing Chun, but it also had ideas from fencing and boxing. But this was just the start. Eventually, his system would continue to grow as Bruce Lee would continue to learn and be exposed to new things. The name for this system was to be Jet Kundo, which can be translated as the way of the intercepting feast, which basically refers to the idea of parrying the opponent's attack and countering all at once. You know, it's the concept of, if you're familiar with fencing terminology, it's the idea of stop a hit. He basically considered JKD, uh, which is the shorthand for Jet Kundo, as fencing without a sword. Uh, one big difference with boxing was that whereas in boxing you stand with your strong hand is behind to deliver more power, so for example if you are right-handed you stand with your left side forward, uh, Bruce Lee believed in the fencing approach of using the strong side forward. So if you are right-handed you'd step forward with the right, because his idea was you want your strongest weapon to be the one that can hit the opponent uh, as easily as possible. The creation of JKD was more than a technical innovation on Lee's part. It was a philosophical revolution, and it's a topic that speaks to me on multiple levels. Hopefully you found my narration of the story of Lee's life so far interesting in itself. 
But the one spot in this tale where uh, I feel that I can bring to the table something extra special is when I get to dive deep into his philosophy. I have, however, to beg for your patience, because we are just about halfway through our series, and I don't really want to rush this next part. So hang on for just a little bit, and I promise that at the very beginning of the second and final part of this series, coming out, I think within two weeks, I'll, uh, I'll be hitting the ground running and immediately tackling what is so powerful about Bruce Lee's philosophy. Usually I enjoy everything I get to cover on History on Fire. I can't think of a topic that I haven't enjoyed tackling at some point. But this next section is truly a special treat for me. And I can't wait to get started. So I hope you'll join me for it. Coming very soon. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you'd like to check out more episodes, you can go to luminarypodcast.com. Over the last couple of years, I covered a whole variety of topics that have been exclusive to Luminary. I discuss um, anything from my family's experiences during World War II in Italy to the weirdness of the Taiping Rebellion, the deadliest conflict in human history other than World War II. 
I did a biography of John Brown, I did a really long series on Sitting Bull, The Ghost Dance and Wounded Knee, and much, much more. So if you'd like to check it out, please go to luminarypodcasts.com.